I uh, don't want you to miss any of it. But we do have a Bible study tonight, so let's begin to look at Deuteronomy chapter 21. And Father, we do come tonight. We ask that you'd bless this study. And Lord, as we go through these laws, we know that we're not under the law, but we also know that there is application and principles that are here for us today as Christians. And so we don't want to ignore what it is, uh, what your heart is, um, what it is that you desire from us, and Lord, that we can learn from these chapters. And I pray that you would just help us be attentive. Father, I know it's the time of year where a lot of people are busy, uh, students at school, um, a lot of projects need to be done before um, Christmas comes. And it gets busy for us, so I, I thank you that we can be here to be refreshed in your word, and I pray that that would take place. Um, just a refreshment and a renewal in our hearts, um, that we would just draw close to you right now, and we would learn from you. I pray you bless the children as they're doing um, their lessons, and then also uh, making cards uh, to encourage those in the life care center. I pray you bless them, and then the youth as well as they're meeting. So we give you this time in Jesus' name, amen. Chapter 21. Now, just to remind you where we're at, as we've been going through the book of Deuteronomy, we're, we're getting to um, the last half of the book of Deuteronomy, and Moses is giving his last address to the children of Israel. This is his last series of sermons that he's given to them, as the book of Deuteronomy covers a, a span of about 30 days. And as he's addressing them, here they are, the children of Israel, poised to go into the promised land. They've already been in the wilderness wandering for 40 years. Moses came along and he told them that, you know what, um, your fathers came out of Egypt. God brought them to Mount Sinai, made a covenant with them, gave them the law. But because they broke that covenant, because of their disobedience and would not go into the promised land, your fathers died out there in the wilderness. So here's a new generation that's ready to go into uh, the land which God has given to them. But they needed to get ready spiritually. They were ready physically, but spiritually they needed to get ready. So Moses is again reiterating and reminding them of the covenant that the Lord made with them. He is giving them the law once again. That's what the word Deuteronomy means in the Septuagint, the second law. Not that it's a new set of laws, but here is the law that you guys need to be establishing, that you need to know. And remember that, that this is a nation now that when they came out of Canaan 400 years before, it was Jacob and his sons, a total of 75 people that were a part of the nation. Now there's two and a half to three million people that are poised to go into the land, to take the land, to get their allotments and their inheritance. And so specific instructions are given to them, not only in giving them the law, the ceremonial and civil laws, but also how they are to um, conduct themselves uh, in different matters, different principles given to them, uh, how they are to um, guidelines, that is, given to them when it comes to warfare, all these things that is preparing them to, as they go into the promised land. So that's what we're going to see. We're going to see these, these laws, again, given to them, how they are to run their nation and what God has required of them. And so that's what's being reminded uh, by Moses as they're listening to this address. Chapter 33 of Deuteronomy, we will see that Moses will give his final blessing to the children of Israel, and then Moses will die there on Mount Nebo. And at the end of Deuteronomy, we see the children of Israel 
mourning for a period of 30 more days. And then the book of Joshua starts with the children of Israel crossing the Jordan River, going into the promised land, being led by Joshua. And so let's begin to, to see, again, how Moses is explaining them, uh, the laws concerning different uh, situations and circumstances. Verses 1 through 9 of chapter 21 is the law concerning unsolved murder. So if anyone is found slain, lying in the field and land which the Lord your God has given you to possess, and is not known who killed him, then your elders and your judges shall go out and measure the distance from the slain man to the surrounding cities. And it shall be that the elders of the city nearest to the slain man will take a heifer which has not been worked and which has not polluted uh, or that is not pulled with a yoke. And the elders of the city, verse 4, shall bring the heifer down to a valley with flowing water, which is neither plowed nor sown, and they shall break the heifer's neck there in the valley. Then the priests, the sons of Levi, shall come near, for the Lord your God has chosen them to minister to him and to bless the name of the Lord. By their word, every controversy, every assault shall be saddled. And all the elders of the city nearest to the slain man shall wash their hands over the heifers whose neck was broken in the valley. In verse 7, then they shall answer and say, Our hands have not shed this blood, nor our eyes uh, uh, seen it. Provide atonement, O Lord, for your people Israel, who have redeemed, you have redeemed, and not lay innocent blood to the charge of your people Israel. And atonement shall be provided on their behalf for the blood. And then verse 9, So you shall put away the guilt of the innocent blood from among you when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. So this law concerning uh, an unsolved murder, that is, if someone is found dead, it's obvious that they did not die of natural causes. It's obvious that they died um, by, uh, by the hands of somebody. There was no witnesses. Uh, no one knows who did it. Uh, no one has come forward. Now, back in ancient times, of course, they didn't have investigators. Uh, they didn't have law enforcement uh, agencies. They didn't have DNA. They didn't have CSI like what we do today. And, and those things are, are very much a blessing when it comes to solving, um, you know, unknown murders or, or cases in, uh, of that nature. Matter of fact, all of us, I think, or most of us read in the papers how our local sheriff's office has just made an arrest concerning a cold case 32 years old, and it's all connected with DNA. And it's wonderful that we have the technology to be able to do that. But back in this time, they didn't have that. So if there was no witnesses, no one was around, no one's come forward, um, then what would happen was uh, in this unsolved murder, uh, what they would do is they would go to the nearest city from where the body was found, and there the elders would make atonement and for and and cleanse the land for this murder. Now, Numbers chapter thirty-five, verses thirty-three and thirty-four. We saw as we went through the book of Numbers that the um, unavenged murder pollutes and defiles the land, and so atonement must be made for the land. So God was interested in justice uh, that there be atonement made for the land. And it's interesting later on in their history when you get. Uh, looking at the house of Israel and the house of Judah right before their captivities. The house of Israel would go off into captivity by the Assyrians. And then about 120 years later, it would be the house of Judah going off into captivity by the Babylonians. They were both involved in idol worship. 
But one of the things that was taking place, as you read in the books of the prophets, is that the characteristics of what was going on was that there was violence in the land, and they were ones that were uh, cheating their brothers, they were taking their lands, there was violence, they were um, putting to death the prophets and others who were desiring to follow the Lord, and so they would end off end up going off into captivity as a part of that and their false worship and all of that. So you see that mentioned as you go through the Old Testament. But here, the Lord has given them instructions. What they are to do is the elders are to have this washing of the hands in the presence of the son of the Levites, and and which would declare that they were innocent of this person's blood, and then this matter was to be settled. So there was that cleansing that was to take place concerning um, the death of someone that they didn't know uh, by whose hand they died. And then verses 10 through 14, talking about female captives. When you go out to war against your enemy and the Lord your God delivers them to your hand and you take them captive and you see among the captives a beautiful woman and desire her and take her for your wife, then you shall bring her home to your house and she shall shave her head and trim her nails. She shall put off the clothes of her captivity, remain in your house, and mourn her father and her mother a full month. After that, you may go into her and be her husband, and she shall be your wife. And it shall be, if you have no delight in her, then you shall set her free, but you certainly shall not sell her for money. You shall not treat her brutally, because you have humbled her. And so, taken of a female captive, um, marrying her, you could do that after this mourning period. She is to, to put off her clothes. In other words, she is to be one that is taken off the clothes that identified her with that nation, and now she belongs to the children of Israel. She does come into your house and you marry her. But here, again, um, it was um, this, uh, this, uh, this guideline that was given to them that it, you shall not treat her brutally um, in and, and then um, you shall set her free, shall not sl- sell her off into slavery. So um, here we see the guidelines given to them concerning that. When it comes to the first inheritance rights, verse 15 through 17, if a man has two wives, one loved and the other unloved, and they have borne him children, both the love and the unloved, and if the firstborn son is of her who is unloved, then it shall be on the day that he bequeaths his possessions to his sons, that you must not bestow firstborn status on the son of the loved wife and preference to the son of the unloved, the true firstborn. But he shall acknowledge the son of the unloved wife as the firstborn by giving him a double portion of all that he has, for he is the beginning of his strength, the right of the firstborn is his. And so here we see that if a man had two wives, now it was God's intention, clear back in the beginning in the book of Genesis, that he said, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. It was always God's desire that there be one man, one woman, uh, as husband and wife relationship. But in ancient culture, it was common that uh, there would be those who would have perhaps two wives. So with that reality, God is regulating, listen, that if you have two wives and one is loved and one is unloved, now what does that remind you of? It should remind you of the book of Genesis, doesn't it? When Jacob, he loved Rachel, but as a set of circumstances happened, uh, he was tricked into marrying Leah. You've got to go back and read that text. We don't have time to talk about it tonight. 
but he married Leah, Rachel's sister, um, because of the deception of um, their father. And so it would be later that he would end up marrying Rachel. But Jacob loved Rachel, and it was Leah that was not loved by Jacob in, in the way that Rachel was. And you see that very clearly as you go through there. And so the guidelines given here, if you have two wives, and the eldest son was to get a double inheritance. That was the blessing of being the oldest. And so what he's saying is that you are not to have preference uh, and not to be prejudiced towards the one who was born. If the eldest son was born to the one that was unloved, he gets that double inheritance. And so you're not to, to show preference to the one that was loved. But, you know, as we go through this, again, we can look at some of these things, and it's talking about female captives, and it's talking about double inheritance and all of these things. There are some principles that you and I can get from this as we read these things. And one of the things is that Jesus came along and he said, you cannot serve two masters, didn't he? He said, you will love the one and you will hate the other. And so he talks about you cannot serve man and you cannot serve God. And the thing about having two wives and the Lord would warn, and you recall that he gave those guidelines earlier a few chapters ago about the king that when you ask for a king, the king is not to multiply wives because he'll pull your heart away um, from me. And so there was a problems with having multiple wives. Um, there is those uh, in the, you know those situations where one would be loved, one unloved. But the thing for you and for me to remember in these days is not to have a divided heart. That I pray that we would be ones that our first love would be to our bridegroom Jesus Christ. And all through the scripture, you see where God would address those who had a divided heart. You recall that Elijah would address those on Mount Carmel when he said to them, how long are you going to be between two opinions? If Baal is the Lord, then worship him. If it's, you know, God, Jehovah is Lord, then worship him fully. But we want to make sure that we don't have a divided heart, that our love and our love for God is there and and that we're not having a love for the world and a divided heart for the world. And so here we see um, that the inheritance rights given to the firstborn, um, that was to be a double portion, no preference given to the the loved wife. And it is God's desire, again, that we be ones, that we make sure that, Lord, whatever it is that you have for me, that I don't have a divided heart, Um, that, Lord, my love is for you, and I desire to do what it is that pleases you. Verse 18 through 21, And a rebellious son, if a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and who, when he has chastened him, will not heed them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of the city, to the gate of his city. And they shall say to the elders of his city, This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of his city shall stone him to death with stones. So he shall put away the evil from among you, and all Israel shall hear and fear. So pretty brutal, isn't it? And um, and as you look at this, here is a son that he is rebellious. He's been chastened by his parents. And if it is found that as he is taken to the elders of the city um, to where he is in that state of rebellion and stubbornness and uh, does not obey the voice of his father, then there, this could be carried out. And it is interesting, and we'll say this, there's no instance in the Old Testament where this, I can see, where this was carried out. 
Um, if you find one, I stand corrected, but I can't remember offhand of this ever being executed um, and, and played out. One of the things to remember, too, this is not talking about a small child that's rebellious. You know, you tried to chasten him, and he's still um, being rebellious, or uh, he's being stubborn, or whatever it is, and so you, you take him out and stone him. It's not that way at all, okay? So I know this sounds harsh, but this is talking about a child that has grown up and is an adult. How do I know that? Because he's a drunkard or a glutton. So apparently this is a situation that's gotten so bad to where you've tried to bring the chastening of the Lord, but there's this continuous rebellion and, and stubbornness and disobedience that has taken place. It is an extreme case, and that's what the rabbinical um, you know, scholars will tell you is a reference to, an extreme case of one who's rebelling against the Lord. And, and one who is, uh, uh, you know, uh, can bring damage and danger to the nation in their rebellion. It is one that the parents have tried to chasten. And so an extreme case that has taken place here. But again, one of the things that we can make application, and one of the things that I want to pass along to your parents, when I talk to the youth group, when we talk to the kids in the children's ministry, one of the things that we do try to pass along to them is to honor their parents. And that the New Testament tells that children to obey their parents for this is right in the sight of the Lord. And so we encourage them in that. That, again, this is a case where here are parents that are desiring to honor the Lord, trying to raise their children up in the ways of the Lord as they've been instructed, but their children have rebelled against that. And one of the things that we try to reiterate to your children, and I do particularly as I talk to the youth group and, and high schoolers, is that you honor mom and dad, that you are to be submissive to mom and dad as long as you're living under their home, and that you're to walk in obedience and, and listen to them, and that honors the Lord. Because sometimes they'll say, oh, Mom, you know, bleh, you know, she won't let me stay out later. Well, she tells you to get in, you get in. And so we are ones that we want to do um, and explain to them um, the things that God has commanded, and for them to honor the Lord in the way that he has called them to, and that is honor mom and dad. And here's the thing. As you and I desire to raise our children in the ways of the Lord, and I've talked to my own kids about it. I've got four kids, and, two, and I've got two teenagers, almost three teenagers now. And, and I tell them, listen, as mom and dad, you know, as you're living under our homes, and, and as we make up the rules and as we instruct you and we're raising you up in the ways of the Lord in the best way that we can, that if you don't learn to be submissive and obedient to mom and dad, you know what's going to happen when you get out on your own? Chances are you're not going to be obedient and submissive to a loving Heavenly Father. And there's going to be rebellious, that rebellious spirit that's going to take place. Am I making sense? and make an application of what's going on here. And so we want to explain those things to our children. It's something that I want to come along and, and, and to, to you know, come alongside of you guys and say, listen, you need to be ones that you honor mom and dad, what the scripture says, being submissive to mom and dad, be obedient to mom and dad as long as you're under the house. And, and to be ones that, um, that's going to help you in your spiritual walk uh, when you leave the house, because then you're going to learn to be obedient to Heavenly Father. 
So here we see this uh, guidelines given to a rebellious son and then miscellaneous laws as we finish the chapter and go into chapter 22. If a man has committed a sin deserving of death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain overnight on the tree, but you shall surely bury him that day so that you do not defile the land which the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance. For he who is hanged is accursed of God. And, and here this is um, not the uh, you know, hanging of a tree like the Wild West that we might think of. If somebody was stoned to death, and that was the method of execution by the children of Israel, to pin them on a tree um, would be to expose that corpse. It was um, to expose that person in disgrace is what it was. And the Lord says you're not going to do that. Um, it would be later that the Romans would come up with the execution of death by crucifixion. They were the ones that invented that method of execution, and that would come right before, of course, the days of Jesus uh, when the Romans uh, began to take um, over the known world. So it was the children of Israel that would, uh, their method of execution, stoning by death, but here's something interesting. You don't pin him to a tree. And in this last phrase of the chapter, it says, For he who is hanged is accursed of God. And that should ring a bell with you and I, because Galatians chapter 3 tells us that Jesus became a curse for us as it is written. And then Paul quotes from here, Deuteronomy chapter 21, Curses everyone who hangs on a tree. And of course, Jesus, who lived the perfect life, who knew no sin, became sin for us. He became a curse as he would hang on that tree, right? The tree of Calvary. As he was redeemed. As he redeemed you and I. As he shed his blood for forgiveness of sin. Hanging on that tree. And so Paul's writing about that, thinking about that. He says, you know, he became a curse. That you might be free from the curse of the law. That you might be saved as he was hung on that tree, the tree of Calvary. Chapter 22, you shall not see your brother's ox or his sheep going astray and hide yourself from them, you shall certainly bring them back to your brother. And if your brother is not near you, or if you do not know him, then you shall bring it to your own house, and it shall remain with you until your brother seeks it. Then you shall restore it to him. You shall do the same with his donkey, and you shall do with his garment, with any lost thing of your brother's which he has lost, you have found. You shall do likewise. You must not hide yourself. And then verse 4, you shall not see your brother's donkey or his ox fall down along the road and hide yourself from them. You shall surely help him lift them up again. And so here you're to show kindness to your brother regarding animals that may get out. There's regulations given according to possessions they might have. If you see a neighbor's or brother's ox get out or a sheep, you're not to just ignore it. You're not to have the attitude of, good, I hope the ox and sheep run away or any of that. You are to, to make sure that you take that ox and that sheep and that you hold it till your brother gets it or take it home if you don't know who it is till they come looking for their ox. Now, an ox was a very valuable possession back in those days. Um, it was their livelihood to have an ox to be able to plow the field. So you're to treat others in the right way. You're to be considerate of others. And if you've been with us on Sunday morning, that should ring a bell with us as well. We can make application with this, and that is what Paul said in Philippians chapter 2, right? When Paul was writing to the, to the Philippian believers, he said, Let your conduct be worthy of the gospel and have the same mind, the same spirit, the same love. And he tells us how we can do that. And he says, Do nothing through selfish ambition, but 
um, with lowliness of mind that you're to esteem others better than yourself and look out not only for your own interests but for the interests of others. And so we live in a society more and more, don't we, to where we're told to look out for yourself and we don't want to get involved and we just ignore things. We're looking out only for our own, own interests. And the Bible says it's not to be that way with Christians. We're to treat others right. We're to look out for the interest of others. And so, um, you know, you see your neighbor's dog get out. You don't just ignore it. You know, if you know that dog means a lot to the neighbor and it's, it's a pet, um, then you're to help them out. You're not to snicker about it or whatever it might be. And to be considerate of others, treat others right is what it is being said. And so, again, that principle and that commandment given to us in Philippians chapter 2, and here they're told, you know, treat your neighbor right. Um, you know, make sure that you help them out. Verse 5, a woman shall not wear anything that pertains to a man, nor shall a man put on a woman's garment. For all who do so are abomination to the Lord your God. Pretty self-explanatory. I don't think I need to go further into this. I will say this. There are those of some of the legalistic circles that will say, see, verse 5 tells you know, women that they shouldn't wear jeans or pants. It doesn't say that, okay? Um, and you can go into 1 Corinthians chapter 11 when it goes into head coverings and it talks about men, you should not have long hair. And so they make up the guidelines, what's long hair? You know, what is long hair for men? Is it top of your ears? Is it the bottom of your ears? Is it down to your neck? What is long? You see what I mean? Understand what the Lord is saying here. He is saying, don't dress up to where, you know, you're a man where you're trying to make yourself be a woman. Or a woman dress yourself up to where you're trying to get others to, to think that you're a man. And, of course, we see that in our society today. Transvestites and cross-dressing and all this other stuff that our society is trying to come along and say is acceptable. And God's Word says, no, it's not acceptable. And, um, and so, you know, here it's pretty self-explanatory. And uh, when it talks about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, about a man having long hair, it's talking about a man just trying to make himself out to be a woman. That's what it's talking about. So we are clear what God's Word has to say pertaining to this. Verse 6, If a bird's nest happened to be before you along the way in any tree or in the ground, and with young ones or eggs, with the mother sitting on the young or on the egg, you shall not take the mother with the young. You shall surely let the mother go and take the young for yourself, that it may be well with you and that you may prolong your days. Verse 7, the implication is, is that you let the mother go, you take the eggs with you to put the eggs back in the tree or back into the grass or whatever it may be. So some look at this and say these two verses are talking about being kind to animals. And I guess you can look at it that way, but also it was common sense as well um, that you know, be good stewards of, of the land. You see that throughout the scriptures. And, and the birds were beneficial. And if you want them to reproduce, don't just let the, the nest there on the side of the road where it can be crushed or walk on. You know, deal with it. Be considerate. Uh, be responsible is what is being told. And it's interesting here that it says that if you do this, it will be well with you that you may prolong your days. And, and that kind of struck me because... This is called the smallest of the commandments. But yet there is a promise that is given that if you do this, you'll prolong your days, the land will be blessed. And I want to remind us that all throughout the scriptures, as we look at God's word and the truths and the principles and the commandments given to us, 
as we say in our hearts, Lord, I want to keep the smallest of the commandments to honor you. There's a blessing that goes with that. I really believe that. And the Lord delights in that. I pray that our hearts would never be, Lord, how close can I get to the world and still be a Christian? You see? What our hearts need to be is, Lord, how close can I get to you and live in a life that is pleasing to you? That's what my heart wants to be. And even in the smallest of things, there is blessings that the Lord has for you and for me. And there's all kinds of of things in the scriptures that we can forget about our speech and how our speech is to be seasoned with salt, seasoned with grace, no harsh words speaking to others, you know, how we treat others, all these these things that the smallest of commandments, we can read it and say that's no big deal, perhaps. But to the Lord it is a big deal because he wrote it in his word to be preserved for all eternity. So there is a blessing as we keep the smallest of the commandments, even as here there was a blessing given. And then verse 8, you sh- when you build a new house, then you shall make a parapet for your roof that you may not bring guilt of bloodshed on your household if anyone falls from it. Uh, that is a railing. Put a railing on your roof. Now, you go to the Middle East even today, the roofs are flat. And what they would do is they would build their homes, and then in the evening times they would go up on their roofs because they didn't have air conditioning. So in the, in the evening times, in the mornings, they would spend time out there. You see in Israel today, if you go there, the roofs are flat. People are out on their roofs, um, you know, in the evening time and, and in the morning times. So put a railing on it so your kid doesn't walk over the edge, fall over, or you fall over the edge. The application that I think that we can make for ourselves, the spiritual application, is make sure that you put up some spiritual railings so, you don't, so that you don't fall over the edge, all right? And we need to put up some spiritual railings in the day in which we're living in. We really do. Because there is so much out there that can cause us to fall into temptation or sin or you know, cause us to, to you know, suck us into carnality or whatever it might be. So make sure you guard your heart. And make sure there are spiritual railings that are up to protect you. That you're in that place where you need to be with the Lord and staying put there. And so as we continue on, verse 9 through 12, you shall not sow your vineyard with different kinds of seeds, lest the yield of the seed which you have sown and the fruit of your vineyard be defiled. You shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. You shall not wear a garment of different sorts, such as wool and linen mixed together. And you shall make tassels of the four corners of the clothing with which you cover yourself. So when it comes to planting a vineyard or it comes to planting a field, you're not to mix different kinds of seeds. Now that makes sense to you and I, doesn't it? We live in an agricultural area. You don't look out on the farm country and you see a field that has corn and onions and wheat and all of this all in the same field, do you? It's, you got a corn field, you got a wheat field, you got an onion field, whatever it might be, the crop that they're growing. So you don't mix up the seeds, um, different kinds of seeds. You don't yoke a donkey and an ox together. It's not going to work. Of course, a yoke would be joining two animals together that would go and plow a field. And so you either yoke two ox together or two donkeys together. But don't mix it up. And he goes on and he says, make sure that you don't mix wool with linen. Um, It's kind of interesting. When you go into the book of Ezekiel, it talks about how the priests were to wear linen. They were not to wear wool. 
And the reason that they were not to wear wool is because wool made you sweat. So the priests, as they were in the temple doing the ministry, they were to wear linen so it wasn't a sweaty kind of thing that they were doing. So don't mix these things. And again, I think that we can make application for us today. Don't mix different kinds of seeds. Jesus would talk about the parable of the sower that went out to sow seeds, the seed being the word of God. What I pray for us is that we don't mix the seed of the word of God and the seed of the philosophy of the world together in our lives. Folks, there's a lot of that that's taking place amongst Christians today. That we take a little bit of the word of God, but we mix it in with what the philosophy and the traditions of men are, the word of the world is. We're going to see on Sunday morning, not this Sunday, but as we continue in the book of Colossians, that Paul's going to say, in Christ Jesus is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And he's going to go on to say, don't be cheated by the philosophies of men, traditions of men, by the wisdom of the world, that which is not of Christ. And I pray for you and for me that we would be ones, that the word of God would be in our hearts, growing in our hearts, that we wouldn't take the seed of, of the world, which is contrary to what the word of God has to say, and try to mix it in with our hearts. You don't want that mixture taking place. But it, it can happen in the church today. It can happen, I see it with messages that are given and, and messages of, of the, you know, being part of the world or being enamored with the world, whatever it might be. I want to, when I teach, give you the pure word of God. I don't want to give you the seed of the world. I don't want to give you the philosophies of men. I may give you my opinion at times, but I will tell you it's my opinion. So I want to give you the, the pure word of God, the seed of God's word, in your, and have that in my heart. Now, also, speaking of mixture, you don't want to give a mixed message to others. Parents in your family, that you're telling your kids, you need to follow after the Lord and you need to learn the Bible and all of this, but yet you're not doing that. And you're not learning God's word and your conduct is not that of the gospel or of a Christian. You don't want to give mixed messages to your children or to the people that are linked to you in your life. Yeah, I'm a Christian, but then you act like the world. And if we are saying that I am a Christian, I'm an ambassador of Jesus Christ, it's like what Paul said on Sunday mornings on Colossians, that you live a life pleasing to the Lord. Live a life that, that would honor the Lord, that shows people that you're different than the world, that shows people the reality of Jesus Christ that is in your heart. Folks, I don't think anybody expects any of us to be perfect. We are perfectly forgiven. But there is an attitude and there is a mindset that they are expecting from us when we say that we're a Christian, isn't there? And it's a mindset of humility before the Lord, a heart of humility. It is a contrite and humble spirit. It is one that desires to do um, what is good and right in the sight of God. And so I pray that we wouldn't give mixed messages in that way. So different kinds of seeds when it comes to yoking an ox and a donkey together. Again, um, it's not going to work. Second Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, you don't mix a believer. It's not to be yoked with an unbeliever, right? 
And so that is so very true. And one of the things, again, that we talk, and I talk to the young people, high schoolers or young adults that perhaps are young and, you know, begin to think about dating or courting or whatever it might be, make sure that they're doing it in a way that, again, their relationships are honoring to the Lord. And, and not to be dating, not to be looking at getting married to an unbeliever. I have had those who have come to me who said, we want you to marry us, and it is a believer, and the one that they're engaged to is an unbeliever. And I will take them to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. I will explain that verse to them, and I will explain to them that I will not perform the marriage ceremony because God has released me from that, and I will not do that because the scripture specifically says that a believer is not to be yoked to an unbeliever. And so this is something, again, parents talk to your kids about. It's something that we talk to them about. But in relationships, and, 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 and not only as they get ready to date and, and, um, and to marry, and I know that there are situations where when people are married that they end up you know, getting saved and maybe their spouse is not a believer and Paul addresses all that in 1 Corinthians and he says that if the unbelieving spouse wants you to stay, then you stay in that marriage. So, but when it comes to beginning to yoke yourself, you got a decision to yoke yourself to somebody, make sure it's not an unbeliever in relationships. Um, Those of you who are single, um, make sure um, even in other relationships that um, perhaps maybe business relationships. And, and it's talking about being yoked together. When you're yoked together, you're walking together. You're, you're desiring to go in the same direction. So maybe a business partner or, or something like that. That's something that you've got to pray about. Do I want to yoke myself with that person? Maybe that person who isn't an unbeliever. So seriously consider these things as, as you go to the Lord about it. And then it talks about wool and linen. And, and again, as I told you, that the priests were to wear linen, not to wear wool. And for me and my ministry and what I do for the Lord, I don't want it to be a sweaty kind of thing wearing wool. Okay, I don't want it to be a fleshly kind of thing. I want it to be spirit-led. And you can do ministry out of the flesh. You really can. And you can do it for a long time. But I pray that none of us would come to that point in our lives where we're doing just going through the motions. I don't want that for my ministry. I don't want that where, okay, it's a Wednesday night. We're going through the book of Deuteronomy. It's December. No big deal. You know, it snowed this morning. Few people will show up. I, you know, and I don't want to do that. I want to be Lord. I want to prepare for the few people that come as if a thousand people were going to come. I want to prepare because I get to give the word of God to people and I need your help in that, Lord. And it's an awesome responsibility that I have. I don't want to ever do ministry out of the flesh, but Lord, in your leading, in your guidance, and your empowering. And I pray that's way if any of us that minister to children, if we're doing any ministry at all, whether it's leading worship, whether it's doing youth, whether it's teaching a Bible study, discipling people, whether it's cleaning the church, it's mowing the lawns, whether it's working in a coffee shop, bookstore, whatever that we would do it because God has called us to it, because we love the Lord, 
and He's enabling us. He's working out those gifts that are in us. But not a fleshly kind of thing. And, um, and so here He gives these laws concerning mixing. And, and why? Because you're a heavenly people, verse 12. You shall make tassels on your four corners of the clothing which, uh, with which you cover yourself. We saw in the book of, um, it was Numbers chapter 15, verse 38, they were told they were to wear a ribbon of blue, tassel of blue on, on their garments. It was to tell them that they're a heavenly people. You and I are a heavenly people. We belong to the Lord. So you don't want to mix in the word of the world, but have the word of God that rules in your heart. You want to make sure that your relationships are that, where you're yoked to somebody, that it's honoring the Lord, and then that you're walking in the Spirit as you serve the Lord in your life. And then verses 13 through 21, we'll go through this quickly because it's a law of of sexual morality. Um, And we've gone over a lot of this, so we'll look at it very quickly. If any man takes a wife and goes into her and detests her and charges her with shameful conduct and brings a bad name on her and says, I took this woman, and when I came to her, I found she was not a virgin, then the father and the mother of the young woman shall take and bring out the evidence of the young woman's virginity to the elders of the city at the gate. And that the young woman's father shall say to the elders, I gave my daughter to this man as wife, and he detests her. Now he has charged her with shameful conduct, saying, I found your daughter was not a virgin, and yet these are the evidences of my daughter's virginity, and they shall spread the cloth before the elders of the city. Then the elders of the city shall take that man and punish him, and they shall find him 100 shekels of silver and give them the father of the young woman because he has brought a bad name on a virgin of Israel, and she shall be his wife. He cannot divorce her all of his days. But if this thing is true and evidences of virginity are not found of the young woman, then they shall bring out the young woman to the door of her father's house, and the men of her city shall stone her to death with stones because she has done a disgraceful thing in Israel to play the harlot in her father's house who shall put away evil from among you. Now as we go over this, again, this is um, something that as we look at it, um, it was um, laws concerning uh, false accusation uh, when it comes to virginity and purity. As we read this, um, and even for me to talk about a little bit, you know, causes us to blush a little bit. But um, as we go through this, what they would do was um, apparently in, in ancient Israel, they would on the wedding night give a, a cloth and then as they consummated the marriage that um, they would lay that cloth down and there would be the evidences if she was a virgin or not. If the accusation came out and it was a false accusation, then the man was dealt with. Um, if, if the accusations were true, um, that she wasn't pure and a virgin at the wedding, then again, there was harsh punishment that was given out. But I, I want to say this, folks, again, as we are the ones that are in a society and we are living in a nation where sexual immorality is so rampant that I pray that parents, that you would take the time to talk to your kids about purity. And notice here that she was brought to the father's house. And I want to encourage dads that you play a big part in that. And we need to talk to our kids about purity. And one of the things that I have talked to my two older ones and beginning to talk with Rachel is purity. And not just physical purity. But spiritual purity and emotional purity. 
and just spend in time with them about the things of the Lord and His desire for them. And for them to understand that what the Lord desires for them and the best way to live is to live a life of purity. Right now, as they are young, to encourage them and to talk to them about purity and remaining pure. And you see, it's more than just the physical aspects, but it's what is it that you're taking in? Because there's so many influences that are out there. There's so many attitudes out there that are saying it's okay, just do whatever it is that you want to do. Be sexually active or whatever, it's no big deal. And so we want to make sure, parents especially, we've got to in these days be praying for our kids and then explaining these things to our kids as well. And then again, as I talk to the, the youth, the older kids, that I encourage them in this whole area of purity, to live a life of purity that is pleasing to the Lord. That's the best way. And, and you see, as society comes along and says, you know, do and live the way you want and, and you know, be sexually active. It's not all that big a deal. They don't tell you all the, the consequences and the repercussions of it. How fast sexually transmitted diseases are spreading. How emotionally damaging it can be to young people. And we're not just talking about single people. For those of us who are married, you stay pure in that marriage relationship. Because again, we see the fracturing of marriages. We see the fracturing of the family because of adultery, infidelity, immorality. It is again rampant. So I pray that we would see that God says, I want what's very best for you, and that is a life of purity, to live pure, and for you to remain pure. And, and for us, as, even as we're married, to be faithful to our spouses. And that takes on not only the physical aspects, because we see the damage that is done. We've seen the damage that is done to our nations and again to families. We're all seeing the news today of one person who is very, very well known in the world that is facing accusations of, of adulterous relationship and we'll see what happens to his reputation and all of that that comes along with it. But you see, the hurt and the damage, no one is excluded from that. That's what I'm trying to say. So parents, talk to your kids about purity. And, and live in a life of purity. That's the best way to live. And not to believe the deception of the enemy and what the world will say to us. And to live a life that not only physically talk to them about purity, but trying to talk to them about spiritual purity, emotional purity, just having a life that is focused on the Lord, being strong in the Lord, and not getting sucked into the things of the world. So purity is something that we do want to encourage our children in. And then uh, as we continue, verse 22, if a man is found lying with a woman married to a husband and then both of them shall die, the man that lay with the woman and the woman, so you shall put away evil from Israel. And if any woman who is a virgin is betrothed to a husband and a man finds her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out 
uh, to the gate of the city, and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry out in the city, and the man, because he humbled his neighbor's wife. So you shall put away evil away the evil from among you. You remember in John chapter 8 when they caught the woman in the very act of adultery? In the very act of adultery, they brought the woman, said, Moses says that she should be stoned. What do you say, Master? What do you say, Teacher? Where was the guy? According to here, these scriptures, they were to bring the man as well. If she was caught in the very act, then why wasn't he brought out? So it was a setup. It was a scam that the religious leader is trying to trick Jesus. And so verse 25, if a man finds a betrothed young woman in the countryside and the man forces her and lies with her, then only the man who lay with her shall die. But you shall do nothing to the young woman. There is, there is in the young woman no sin deserving of death. For just as when a man rises against his neighbor and kills him, even so is this manner, so talking in the case of rape, for he found her in the countryside, and the betrothed woman cried out, but there is no one to save her. If a man finds a young woman who is a virgin, who is not betrothed, and seizes her and lies with her, then they are found out. Then the man who lay with her shall give the young woman's father fifty shekels of silver, and she shall be his wife, because he has humbled her, and he shall not be permitted to divorce her all his days. And a man shall not take his father's wife, nor uncover his father's bed. So again, some... Um, laws for rape, uh, for um, other things as well, the guidelines. And Father, we ask that, um, Lord, that in our lives, we ask that you would help us to be ones. And again, as we go through these these um, chapters, they can be difficult sometimes to read and they seem kind of harsh, but Lord, we are thankful that we live in the day of grace and we are thankful that we can make application here to where we desire to live a life pleasing to you. And Lord, I pray that we would do that, that we would be considerate of others, that we would look out not only for our own interests, but for the interests of others.